0: today. I want to uh, remind you of a little stat. I don't use this stat very often, but I'm reminded of it. I was reminded of it this week. Uh, if you, this is not to criticize anyone, but I just this is, this is a fact. If, if you don't write down or it, jump into what we're talking about today, to write it down or do some sort of like note-taking thing, by next week, five percent of you will remember this message. 5%. That's a, that's a fact. <laughs> so that, that's not like a debatable matter. But then, if, if you were to engage and write down and work with the message as you're listening to it, the, the stats go up to about over 20% of you will remember the message. Now let me give you one more. This one will get you, and especially for you parents. If you not only engage with it and write it down, but then you talk about it or share it with someone later, the stats go up to over 85% will remember what we talked, not just what we talked about, but the Word of God will become written on your heart in that way. 85% the stats go up. So, no engagement, just completely just listening, just listening, 5%. Engagement, working together with it, 20%. Engagement, and then sharing the engagement with someone else, 85%. So, just keep that in front of you, that's, that's not a debatable matter, that is a fact. So, even if you have the best of memories, you will probably not remember next week's message, <laughs> or this week's message next week, if you don't engage with it. And if you share it with somebody, I promise you, it will, uh, yeah, that, that's how it works. So, I'm just going to uh, jump into the passage. I just wanted to share that with you this week, not as a condemnatory fact, just as a fact <laughs> to keep in front of you and to remind you of. So, Matthew chapter 3, and I'm, that's why I'm going to try to start giving, um, the text prior to Sunday morning, and I've I've not done well at this, just so we can have it in front of us throughout the week even, like what is the text we're going to be preaching on. So, Matthew 3, I want to read it for us, verses 1 through 12. This is the Word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now I'm going to stop us right there, and I'm not going to read verses 8 through 12, because we're going to cover that next week. I want to pray for us, though, as as we jump into God's Word together. Let's pray. Lord, I pray, Lord, we can use all the kind of tactics and tricks to remember your Word, but if your Spirit, Holy Spirit, if you don't write your Word upon our hearts, we are lost. Lord if you don't engage us with your word we have no hope. And as Jared read this morning, the flower withers and the grass fades, but the word of the Lord remains forever. So God, I ask for a miracle this morning, would you write your word upon our hearts? Not not just to know it intellectually, but God, may we know it in such a way that we live in step with it. And Lord, we can't do that on our own, so I ask right now that you'd help us, by your Spirit and for your glory, to walk in step with your Word. Help us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm not sure if you've ever considered, uh, but I'm going to ask you to consider this morning, um, where the Old Testament begins or ends. So, this is, just to give you a representation, this is how much of your Bible is the Old Testament, and then this is how much of your Bible is the New Testament. And I don't know if anybody's ever asked you this, when does the Old Testament end and the New Testament begin? Have you ever considered that? Now, this is, that's a complicated question. That actually is genuinely a very complicated question. Maybe another question to ask would be, who was the last prophet in the Old Testament? And what's tricky, there's a very tricky point here, because there's not a clear, the Old Testament ends here, New Testament begins here. It's not like that. It's a lot more like this. (laughs) The Old Testament kind of carries into and actually takes us into the New Testament in that way. And I'm going to contend for us this morning that, that John the Baptist is actually the last of the Old Testament prophets. I want you to listen to what Jesus says in another place, Luke 16, 16. This is what he says. The law and the prophets were until John. This is what he says, Luke sixteen sixteen. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom is preached, and everyone forces his way into it. And his whole point there is just to say, John was the last Old Testament prophet. So, the text we're looking at today is a very almost, I would call it a transitional piece. And if you don't get today's message, you really can't understand the rest of the book of Matthew. John, the ministry of John the Baptist is a monumental moment from the last prophetic utterance of the Old Testament. So I'm calling today Preparing the Way. If you're taking notes there, Preparing the Way. And he is Elijah Preparing the Way. Now, I've, I've always heard people contend that John the Baptist was in some weird way, actually Elijah come back from from death. That, no, I don't think that's what he's saying, but Jesus does say at a certain point that J- John the Baptist is the Elijah who is to come prior to the coming of Christ. And we should notice something strange about John the Baptist. So, in their day, in, in New Testament times, you had rabbis and you had priests and you had scribes. So now, now, the rabbis, they reasoned and gave their opinions. They they would be a lot, a lot like uh, political commentators. Think about it, kind of like that, <laughs> giving their opinion, talking a lot. The priests they would have led rituals and ceremonies. They would have done a lot of very liturgical things. And the scribes they described the Torah, they described the law. <laughs> then we see somebody like John. Here, I'm going to describe him real quick here for you. In, in verses, look down in verse four. Now John wore a, cam, a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And you can tell immediately, this guy's different. (laughs) One of these is not like the other, (laughs) okay? One of these is not like the other. He is a prophet declaring what God has said. Now, the prophets have been quiet for about 400 years, and all of a sudden we have somebody named John looking a whole lot like Elijah, saying, And then even Matthew picks up and says what he he was fulfilling, verse 3, if you look down, this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And what Matthew's picking up here and he's telling us is, hey, that John the Baptist guy out in the wilderness, he's the one who's going to prepare the way for God. Notice what, jump. I'm not going to, you don't have to jump here. It's on the screen for you. But Isaiah, listen to what Isaiah then goes on to say in reference right after what he just said. So he quotes Isaiah and he says, the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. He's saying that's John the Baptist. But listen to what happens right after John the Baptist does this. Listen to what he says in verses 4 and 5 of Isaiah 40. He says, every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. And all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And there it is. We see John's the one preceding the glory of the Lord. The one who, John is the one, he is like the spearhead that's coming, and that what comes after John is the glory of the Lord. And who do we see come immediately after John the Baptist? Jesus. Of course, yes. And we all know that, the right answer there. When the way of the Lord has been made straight, then the glory of the Lord will be revealed to all flesh. And again, we notice what John's wearing. Notice what he's wearing again in verses 4. At four. Now, John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. And our minds should be this is Matthew. I love it when the biblical authors I like to think that when you're reading, sometimes they're going, Hey, wink, 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 nod, nod. You know this guy. You guys have seen this guy before. His name's Elijah. He's the prophet. He's the prophet who's coming and telling us, here comes God. And this is what Jesus then says later in Matthew eleven fourteen. He says, and if you're willing to accept it, he, that is John the Baptist, is Elijah who is to come. Meaning that Elijah was to precede the coming of the Lord. And here's, here Jesus is saying, that's John the Baptist. But the question is, what is his message? This is very important for us. What was this guy's message? The closing of the Old Testament. What was his last final utterance? Here it is. Notice what he says in verse three, verse 2. If you have your Bible there, look. He says, "Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand." So this this first piece of his message is simply repentance. And it's simply to return to God. Now, I'm going to consider today not not just what his message was, but I want to consider three elements of what he's saying. The first is repentance. The second will be the kingdom. And then the third will be baptism. Because these are three things, if we don't understand them, we will misunderstand the book of Matthew. We will misunderstand what is said. So he says repentance. The message of John the Baptist is simply repent. This is just an interesting side note. Step aside from the sermon for a minute. If anybody has ever grown up Catholic, I'm just curious, who in here grew up Catholic? Okay, only one. That's okay. If you have Catholic friends, this is very important to know. I've heard people ask before, "How did the Catholic system get so jacked up? What happened?" Like, like the, if you look at like Catholic mass, it looks a lot different. Theology is like as wide as the day is long. This verse, notice what he says. That, that verse simply repent. Actually, one of the big, I would argue, the monumental transitions of how Catholicism got to where it is is actually that one word. That one word in, in what's called the Latin Vulgate, which was translated, I don't even know the year, like 400 from Jerome, he took that word, that one word, repent, and he made it two words. Now, if you're Catholic or have ever heard anything about Catholic, Catholicism, this will make sense. He trans- translated that one word, repent, into do penance. And then all of a sudden, we're like, oh oh goodness. (laughs) Now this whole penance system, this whole idea of purgatory that you need to, once you die, we're all going to go to purgatory and be cleansed there in purgatory. That whole idea, that one word translated from one word to two words as due penance is how we got there. Very, very slowly, and, and then this is, this, this is one example, but I think that's very interesting. So if you have Catholic friends, they would probably understand that word, repent, very differently than you would, and very differently from how I'm going to talk about it today. Okay? So just have that in your brain. I know a lot of you have Catholic friends. If you don't have Catholic friends, you should get some Catholic friends, because they're all around you. Okay? So, but that word, that one word, repent, they take and they make it two words, do penance. And then they think they, they, they can actually earn their way to God. And they think that's actually what John the Baptist is saying there. It's not what John the Baptist is saying there. So I want to consider three kind of definitions or pieces of a definition of repentance. The first is to be sorry. Be sorry. And this is sorrow for sin. Now, I will say this, this element is so common in our everyday interactions with other people that Typically, if you talk about repentance, this is all people think you mean. That all they think you mean is, I saw an example. I was driving down the road the other day and saw on the back of somebody's car this weird picture of Jesus leaning out from like, you know, like one of the stickers. And it said on it, I saw that. And I thought this was funny. It's funny because what they were trying to say was Jesus was just sitting there. All Jesus ever is is, he's just this guy who's going, I saw that. That's all, that's all they think of Jesus. And that's all that I would argue the culture thinks of Jesus. And the problem with this is we're getting the cart before the horse. If we try to make someone feel bad for their sins without a work of the Holy Spirit, it will do nothing. I want to say that one more time. If we try to make people feel sorry for their sin without a work of the Holy Spirit, what you get is moralism. Okay? Which is why the majority of people, when they hear you say, Repent, Jesus has come, all they hear you say is, I just need to feel bad for my sins. That's this is not it. If you talk to a Catholic, that's exactly what they're thinking you mean by this. Second Corinthians 7:10. I just want to keep this in front of you. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation. Now that's the godly grief. That's not what the culture the culture we live in is doing. This is what the culture is doing. Whereas worldly grief produces death. This is, that's, that's the piece that be sorry produces. If your understanding of repentance is simply just feel bad for your sin, I'm going to tell you, you're living in a worldly grief. Worldly grief gets more upset about the consequences of sin rather than the result of sin. Worldly grief is more upset when they've been caught in their sin than, than the fact they've sinned. Worldly grief shifts the blame to other people because it can't stand the blame itself. Worldly grief does not produce change. I want to say that one more time. If we're just telling people to be sorry for their sins, it will change nothing. It will change absolutely nothing. Okay, that's the first definition. Here, let me give you another one. It's the second is to change your mind. It's to change your thinking. Okay, now this is a lot closer to the truth there. The the word repent simply just means to change one's mind. But I want to give you an example and show you how this doesn't actually help us. (laughs) Okay, so be sorry, that's the first definition. Now I want to be clear. Sorrow, there is a sorrow in repentance. And there is a change of mind in repentance. But those two alone will not produce it. So it's, let me tell you why. Let me give you just a simple example. I want you to picture with me two little kids fighting okay? Like this never happens in our homes, right? Picture two little kids fighting. One little kid hits the other one. And what's the mother, what's the mother come in the room and say? She says, she comes in and she says, why did you hit your brother? You need to apologize to them. What, what does the child respond with? I didn't intend to hit them. I didn't mean that. I didn't mean to hit them. But I want to ask, did they still hit them? So, if, if we're just thinking that changing our mind or changing our thinking is all that John is meaning here with this word repent, then we will think that we can somehow detach our thinking from our acting. You'll have little kids hitting each other and saying, I didn't mean to do that. I want to say to that little kid, it doesn't matter if you meant to do it or not. You did it. See, does that make sense, what, what I'm saying there? If we're just thinking that repentance means to be sorry or to change our thinking, We'll miss it. We miss the element of what John's bringing here. I want to give you the last one, which I think is a summarization of repentance. And it's simply to change direction. And it's return to the Lord. Return, return to the Lord. Now, it, it includes, i want to be very clear here. Repentance includes sorrow for sin. Repentance includes a change of mind. But it does not start with those things. Does that make sense? It is a fruit. The sorrow, the changing of the mind is a, is a fruit of this piece of changing direction. And John is calling these Jews here, listen to what he says again, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He is calling for moral reform. I want you to, it'll be up on the screen, but picture another account from Luke chapter three, the same account here but pictured from Luke's angle. This is what he says. He calls the crowds to repentance, and the crowds respond to uh, John the Baptist, and they say to him, what then shall we do? Now notice what he says. If it's just be sorry, he would say, you all need to feel bad for your sin. Y- y'all just need to be, be sorry. Y- y'all just need to change. Y'all just need to be different. He doesn't say, you need to just think differently about your sin. You, you need to just think differently. Notice what he says. He says... This is what he says in verse 11. He says, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, notice what, now each individual kind of comes differently, and he answers them differently. Tax collectors came to be baptized and said to him, teacher, what shall we do? Now, he could say, just feel bad. Feel bad that you've stolen from people. That's not what he says. He says, collect no more than you are authorized to do. He's saying, change the direction that you're going. Change the direction that you're going. Now, notice soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? Now, if you're talking to, sorry, this is a very weird aside, but it's not. If you're ever talking to a Mennonite who says that we shouldn't go to war ever, this would be the one instance that, that John the Baptist should tell him, put down your sword and be done. But what does he say to him? do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusations and be content with your wages. He doesn't tell him to put down his sword. He says, stop extorting people. Stop stealing from people. Stop Stop threatening people. Now, notice their repentance is an outward preparation for what the Lord Jesus is coming to do. This is what's very important about John. John is not saving people here. John is preparing the way for the Lord Jesus, and I want to show you more what I mean by that. And do you know what the big difference between John's baptism and Jesus' baptism is? It's simply the remission of sins. John prepared the way for the coming of forgiveness. He prepared the way for people to be more easily receptive of the forgiveness of Christ. I love what John Christendom said. He said, Therefore, He humbles them also when they, are, when, when they are come, and persuades them no high fancies about themselves, showing them liable of the utmost evils, unless they would repent, and leaving their forefathers, all vaunting in them, would receive Him that was coming. His whole point there is just to say, This guy wrote in like the 200s. I thought this was very interesting. This is his thoughts on it. He says that John the Baptist is a precursor for Christ, he's preparing the way for him. But notice the reason why John says what he says. So he says in verse 2, jump back in Matthew 3 2. He says, Repent. Look at the reason he gives. For, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, I want to talk about this murky term, the kingdom of heaven, and I call it murky because there are so many conceptions of that word kingdom. The kingdom. So, this is the second element. It's the kingdom, and it's God's rule revealed. It's the kingdom. The idea of kingdom is foreign to us in free America. Okay, The idea of kingdom, when we think kingdom, all we think are kings and queens, court gestures, knights, and I love what uh, George Ladd, he, he cites. He says, the dictionary follows this line of thought as, as its first modern definition, a state or monarchy, the head of which is a king, dominion, and realm. That idea of kingdom, that's typically the only way we think of it, is we think about it is in, in this, there's kings, and there's queens, and there's all sorts of kingly and kingdom-like things, right? We all ride around on horses. But the kingdom of God is a common way that Matthews refers to the in-breaking power of God. The religious leaders, they thought that this meant that they were the ethical or ethnic central cent- center of the kingdom of God. When they heard John preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, all they could think is all right, it's time for us to receive the kingdom. That's all the religious leaders were thinking. You know what the crowds were thinking? The crowds were thinking, oh, okay, the kingdom of heaven is here. Now the Romans will be overthrown. Now, did any of that happen? Not at all. So they had some wonky conceptions of the kingdom of God. And that phrase, notice what that other phrase he says there, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's that phrase at hand. It means it has drawn near And not only has it drawn near, but it has broken in, and now it is coming toward us. The idea of kingdom is pivotal for us to understand. So, I'm going to give us three conceptions of it that I would argue are incorrect. And I want to give us the one that I'm going to argue for all through the book of Matthew. The first is simply this. It would be the spiritual kingdom. (laughs) I called it it a ghost party. (laughs) And the reason I call it a ghost party, not because I'm trying to say that they're somehow ghosts, it's just the way that the spiritual kingdom is often talked of, it's just us as disembodied souls, just like floating around in the heavens somewhere. So this this idea of a spiritual kingdom, I would say, is very, very unhelpful. But this view thinks that this is a subjective realm. They understand it as in reference to the human spirit in relation to God. And they only think about the kingdom in in regard to the power within the human soul. The problem with this first view is that the kingdom, if the kingdom is only spiritual, then the kingdom has nothing to do with how you go to work. If the kingdom is only spiritual, it has nothing to do with the way you raise your kids. If the kingdom is only spiritual, then whatever, whatever. This is actually, I would argue, this, this view came from, I would argue, Gnosticism. And the reason it, it came, for, came from Gnosticism is Gnosticism elevated the inward thinking and everything else was just evil. That means, that mean, this means <laughs> the spiritual kingdom doesn't know what to do with food. The spiritual kingdom doesn't know what to do with Jesus eating with the disciples after his resurrection. You know why? Because he's showing he's actually a physical body. So, this view, I would argue, is very flawed, and we should not think about the kingdom simply spiritually. Let me give you a second one. And these are all views, hear me right, these are all views I've held <laughs> at some point, okay? So, this is, I'm not trying to just condemn, I want you to see the, the unhelpfulness of this, these kingdoms. The, se- the second is a future kingdom, and I call it someday somewhere, Okay? this view of the kingdom only sees reference to God's future reign. It has everything to do with someday, somewhere, we're not really sure, it hasn't come yet, so therefore it has nothing to do with today. And I would argue this is a very unhelpful conception of the kingdom, because if we're only thinking the kingdom of God has something to do with some future day, then that means it has nothing to do with us here today. And that's just not what Jesus says. That's not what even John is telling them. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near to them. Then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is is at hand. So that's the future kingdom. And I would say that's very unhelpful. Let me give you another one. This one is equally unhelpful. It's the already here kingdom. And I would call this the over-realized kingdom this view sees the kingdom as completely here. We're, we're just in the kingdom. This is where they get things like, um, if you've ever heard somebody say, you should be healed, and if you don't have healing, you don't have enough faith. That's where conceptions of the kingdom come from, okay? They come from this idea that says, everything should be perfect as, as, as in heaven, so on earth. Okay? They, they would take that, and they would take it to the nth degree and say, the kingdom is already here. Let me give you the last one, and I think the most helpful one, and the conception I want you to have going forward. It's this. It's the already, not yet of the kingdom. And it's here, but it's coming. And this is very important for us to understand about the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is already here. Listen to Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Okay, sounds very right here, right? And then, but at the same time, the Bible speaks, in a way, the not yet aspect of the kingdom. Matthew 25, 34. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed in, by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundation of the world. Okay, so the kingdom is not yet here fully. The kingdom is a present reality, but also a future blessing. The kingdom is, is what we're, we enter now and will enter one day. The kingdom is a gift to be received in the future but it's received when someone receives Christ. So for John to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Daniel, so you're telling me it's here, but it's not here yet. And I would say, yes. <laughs> yes. The arrival of the kingdom represents God's rule and reign. That's what I'm going to argue. The already not yet aspect of the kingdom It's here, and yet it's not yet. And this is in regard to God's rule and reign and authority. God's kingdom has come near to God's people. The kingdom is not a place. The kingdom is not even a people. The kingdom is God's reign. The kingdom is God's reign and God's authority over all things. The kingdom has more to do with the rule and reign of the king than of anything else. Now, God has always ruled and reigned over everything. But since the fall, things have not recognized his rule and his reign. And for Jesus to come, he, he's in breaking, the kingdom is in breaking into the world, which is what John is saying. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or it's near. As Jesus says in another place, Mark ten fifteen, he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. So here the kingdom of God can be received. This is something that can be received, and what this means to be received is it's receiving God's authority. George Ladd, again, I think it's very helpful. He says, in order to enter the future realm of the kingdom, one must submit himself in perfect trust to God's rule here and now. Here's what all this means. Now, I have to, we've talked about multiple views of kingdom. Here's what this means for you. The kingdom of heaven is here. It's here in, in the sense that God's rule and reign in Jesus Christ is here, which means for us, as you see at the top of your paper, the kingdom of heaven is here. Therefore, you must turn from your sin and trust the Savior. Let me say that one more time. The kingdom of heaven is here. Therefore, you must, trust, you must turn from your sin and trust the Savior. Jesus tells us to pray along these same lines. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. He says, pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And this prayer, again, George Ladd. He says, this prayer is a petition for God to reign, to manifest His kingly sovereignty and power, to put to flight every enemy of righteousness and of His divine rule that God alone may be king over all the world. This conception of the kingdom means for me and you right now, all those who've trusted and believed on Jesus are now in the kingdom, and yet we wait for the kingdom. Let me say that one more time. All those who have trusted in Christ currently, right now, are in the kingdom in the sense that we are under the rule and reign and the authority of Christ, and yet at the same time are waiting for the kingdom. (laughs) This is the way Matthew's going to continue to talk about the kingdom. He'll, He'll talk about elements that are here, and then he'll talk about elements that aren't here yet. Now notice, though, what John the Baptist goes on to do, to do. So this is what he does. He talks about the kingdom, but notice what he goes on to do. This is this last element of baptism. It's renouncing your former life. It's baptism. Renouncing your former life. The baptism, though, I want to be clear here. The, the, the baptism administered in the Old Testament is different than John's baptism here. John's baptism in the, the Old Testament conception of baptism was a lot more like ceremonial washing. They would, they would have, uh, like in the temple, just to give you an example, they'd walk into the temple and you would actually administer a washing to yourself they didn't do baptism in the way that we understand where you put somebody all the way under the water and bring them out. That's, that's not the understanding of baptism there. So John's, I'm going to review John's baptism. So John's baptism, and we're closing, closing down, just, just know that we, we don't have many more points. John's baptism, it's water and repentance. John baptized in a period of time which is really unique. It's the end of the Old Testament, and yet at the same time, it's the beginning of the New Testament. Meaning that John was the forerunner or the preparer for the work of Christ. And now there's a very weird interaction that happens in the book of Acts. I want to look at it with you real quick. Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 3. He says this And it happened while Apollos was at Corinth. Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. There he found some disciples. Now, those disciples are not really disciples. We're going to see those disciples of John, I would put that. In verse 2, he says, And he said to them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Now, here you'll see the paradox that happens. And they said, No, we have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, Into what then were you baptized? And they said, Into John's baptism. Okay, so we literally have an outworking of this dynamic happening in the New Testament of John's baptism and Jesus' baptism. And there's actually a sect in the world right now that still is following John the Baptist. Can you imagine that? Like, there's a, there are people that gather, even still, that, that basically follow John the Baptist, which is funny because they missed John the Baptist's message, which was Jesus, which is really ironic. But these disciples are clearly not disciples here we have disciples that are John's disciples, and what they were baptized into was not the name of the triune God. They were baptized into repentance. Now, notice what he says in verse 4. And Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. These people had not yet believed in the Lord Jesus these people had not these disciples were not really disciples they were disciples of John meaning that they were baptized into repentance but they didn't know where the repentance came from they didn't know where the remission of sin was going to take place and look listen what happens in verse 5 of chapter 19 when hearing this they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus they baptized them again you know why they baptized them again because they were never baptized the first time. They were only baptized into John's baptism. They only forsook their sin. They didn't cling to Christ. And this is what baptism is re- representing. Someone has to let down their sin, and that's what they did. They just never clung to the Lord Jesus. Do you, do you see the difference there? So it's, it, it, if faith and repentance is putting down our sin and clinging to Christ... All they did, these first disciples of John, was they put down their sin. And they didn't understand they needed to cling to Christ. And that's what he says. When hearing this, verse 5, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there's a piece of application here for us. And it's this, simply. If you're, if you're not a Christian, or maybe, maybe you, you think you're a Christian, but you have never trusted by faith in the Lord Jesus. I, I need to say that you, you may even hate your sin. This is where I think most of our culture and our society does not understand the Christian message. They hate their sin. They hate their sin. They hate the effects of their sin. They hate the consequences of their sin. They hate that they even are certain ways. But if you hate your sin and do not cling to the Lord Jesus you're lost. You, you are not found in the sheepfold of God in that way. Yet, because the kingdom of heaven is here, therefore you must turn from your sin and trust the Savior. And listen to even what John says. This is what John's message, which is really ironic, because there are still people who follow John the Baptist. Listen to what John the Baptist's message is even further down the road. Verse 11 of chapter 3. He says, I baptized you with water for repentance, but he who's coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I'm not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So I'm going to look, finally, just to close this out, we're going to look at Jesus' baptism. So we have John's baptism, and now we're going to look at Jesus' baptism. And it's the Holy Spirit and fire. John says that the one coming after him will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. The baptism is a baptism that isn't just getting wet. It is very possible for someone to be baptized and simply just get wet. And what I mean by that is they get in the the tub professing Christ, and if the Holy Spirit, though, has not changed their heart, they're just getting a bath. That's all that's happening they're just getting wet. And John says that the one coming after him will baptize his followers with the Holy Spirit. And it's not just the Holy Spirit that grants faith. He's also the one that grants repentance. Acts 11, 18, listen to what he says. When they heard these things, they fell silent. This is after the Gentiles had received the gospel. And they glorified God, saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted, here it is, repentance that leads to life. It's not just simply, so we need to understand John's repentance was different than the repentance that's required for, for the Christian, and we're going to cover that next week. But he says, repentance and faith, that leads to life. I love what Sinclair Ferguson then goes on to say. He says, faith will always be penitent, meaning that faith will always have repentance, and repentance will always be believing. Believing. If it is genuine, I want to say that one more time, faith will always be penitent, or faith will always include repentance, and repentance will always be believing. If it is genuine, there is no regeneration which is not expressed in both faith and repentance. And what this means for you today is simply this, the kingdom of heaven is here, therefore turn from your sin and trust the Savior. And for the Christian, the one who continually is walking with Christ, repentance is not a one-time act. Repentance is something that continually happens, just like faith is something that continually happens. We are, we are invited into a relationship that repentance and faith is how the relationship is mediated in that way. Jesus, then Jesus then later picks up John's baptism, and he says, this is what's going to be true of my followers. Matthew 28, 19, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, now notice the formula here, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. That's what the baptism, it, 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 that, that, that formula represents how people will be identified going forward. In Romans 6, 3-4, through 4, he says this, this is Paul then, Do you not know that all of us who've been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We were buried, therefore, with Him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Brothers and sisters, the kingdom of heaven is here, therefore, you must turn from your sins and trust the Savior. I hope this has been helpful today as we've considered that term repentance. We're going to consider it later on again, as well as the term kingdom. And maybe, maybe some of your views of the kingdom need, need transitioned or they need tweaked a little bit. And then also this term baptism. And I will say that the kingdom of heaven is here, therefore you must turn from your sin and trust the Savior. And next week we're going to continue to look at the same passage and then see it applied to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. That's where we're, gonna, that's where we're going next week. So we're going to be considering the same passage, Matthew 3, 1 through 12, next week as well. I'm going to pray for us, and I'm going to close us out here.